poster image. There's all sorts of things out there, uh, workout machines, um, any part of your body that's a little bit flabby or in need of toning, there is a machine out there built just for it. And they've got pictures. <laughs> you, have, you, have you bought into those, Michael? <laughs> and they've got before pictures and after pictures just to prove to you how effective their machines are. They've got uh, photos of that. If, if you're uh, a guy and you're losing hair, they've got a product out there for you, and they've got some pictures of the before and after. If you're a woman and want to lose some hair, they've got products out there, and they've got before and after pictures. They've got everything. If there's creams that can clear up your skin, melt away your cellulite, whiten your teeth, straighten your teeth, change your hair color, all with photos that prove beyond doubt that they work. I even saw one just recently for a, a toe fungus cream, and I could have done without the before and after pictures, but there it was. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our Summer Psalms series with Psalm 73, and we're going to see that this psalm reads a little bit like some of those ads. The first half of this psalm paints a picture for us, or an image of a man who was grappling with a nagging observation based on a wrong perspective that he had. In verse 17, we're going to see about a change, a radical change that came into his life. And then the last half of this psalm, we're going to see as he looks again back and makes observations with this new perspective. So we're going to see a before and after image of this man of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together this morning, another day to worship you, to spend in your presence, to spend in your house. And we come, Lord asking your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and the eyes of our hearts to what you would speak to us through this psalm. Lord, we want to see the world around us, the universe around us through your eyes and your eyes alone. So help us, Lord, now as we turn to your word. May it speak to us. May your Holy Spirit change us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this psalm was written by Asaph. Um, some of you may not be aware of who Asaph was. It's not typically who we think of when we think of Psalms. We often think of King David. But Asaph one is, was actually one of King David's chief musicians. He was one of the three that orchestrated much of the singing in the Israelite community. And over the course of time, he actually became the worship leader, if you will, uh, for lack of better words, in, in Israel. And he also was a man who wrote a number of the songs that were sung in Israel. And we have quite a few of those that actually became um, books, or uh, sorry, psalms in the, the book of Psalms. So we're going to look at one of his psalms this morning. That's Psalm 73. And here we're going to find an experience that all of us had, have had at one time or another. We look around us and it seems like the bad guys are always winning and the good guys are losing. We see the wicked prospering and the good suffering. People who don't know and love God. People who are not concerned with living God, life God's way. And those who live selfish, arrogant lives. They seem to be the ones who are enjoying life free of burdens. They seem to prosper. They seem to do well. Meanwhile, we look around and we see believers suffering and struggling. At one time or another, who hasn't looked around and observed this and asked these questions? Said, what's wrong with this picture? Isn't God supposed to be good to his people? Are his promises sure and trustworthy? If so, then how do I understand the apparent success of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous? The question, the age-old question is, why do the wicked prosper? 
And that was Asaph's question this morning in Psalm 73. So let's take a look and consider Asaph's observations based on his before picture. He was a, his perspective then was a man-centered short-term perspective. Let's take a look at that. And let's start reading Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent innocence. For all of the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. In scripture, we read and see that we are encouraged to not grow weary in doing what is good. But the reality is that we do grow weary from time to time. This is especially true when we don't see an immediate benefit or fruit of our obedience. We live in a society and a culture that's fast-paced. We want everything now. We know what we want, and we want it now. We can grow weary in our desire to please God when we don't see it pay off for us immediately. It's especially true if we don't see it when we see those around us, unbelievers in particular, who seem to get everything that they want. Another contributing factor is how we interpret God's good, goodness to us. Do we evaluate God's goodness to us based on our level of present temporal and personal happiness? Does our view of happiness have to do with things that are physical, external, and immediate? If so, it's going to be hard for us to look at God and imagine that he could be good and not give us the good life. So let's look at a look at Asaph's confession here and some insights into his thoughts before he had his encounter with God. He's confessing that he had a nearly disastrous stumble and fall that he experienced due to the way he was perceiving the, the wicked around him. If you note how he begins it, it's interesting that the, how he begins. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He makes a statement of absolute truth about God. Truly God is good. Have you ever heard someone say like, something like that? If someone's going through a difficult time and they come to you and they say, I know that God is good. But what comes after that? But. The word but. They begin, I know that God is good, but. I know that God is sovereign, but. I know that God loves me, but. And Asaph begins the same way. I know that God is good to Israel. He's reminding himself. He's speaking truth to himself. I know that God is good to Israel. I know that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But here it is, Asaph, the worship leader in Israel. But as for me, Asaph then makes a confession, a startling confession. This man of God, the worship leader, 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped. Asaph arouses our curiosity. Why the but, Asaph? What's wrong? And he goes and continues in verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph saw something going on around him. He was distracted by something that he saw. His gaze had been diverted away from God to those, something around him. What he saw was that the wicked people, some of the wicked people around him, were prospering, and he became envious of that. Trouble always begins when we take our eyes off of God and place them on something else. When God isn't our complete focus and the complete object of our attention, we get distracted. Our gaze gets diverted, and when that happens, trouble can't be far away. Asaph is confessing to us the failure of a wrong perspective. And what is this perspective? What does a wrong perspective look like? First of all, it's isolated on the present. Asaph became consumed with the here and now. In verse 3, he tells us he was envious of the arrogant and their prosperity. And in verse 4 through 12, he begins to describe for us, which is, and he uses an interesting word. This is, this is the pros, this, these are what the prosperous look like. This is what prosperity looks like to Asaph from his, his, his before perspective. Verse 4 says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. What's a pang? I had to look that word up. It's not one that I use every day. Pang is just some sharp, sharp uh, pain. It can be a, a physical or mental or emotional anguish of some kind. So Asaph saw the people around him. And he, to them, or to him, they looked healthy and beautiful. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. It appears to Asaph that the prosperous never get in trouble or suffer in any way. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. The prosperous, as Asaph observing, were, were violent. They were proud. They were arrogant. Their eyes swell out, verse 7, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. These were individuals who withheld nothing from themselves. They indulged in anything and everything. They showed no self-control. There was plenty of entertainment. They see and do whatever they wanted to. Verse 8 and 9, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. And they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struck to the earth. Prosperous as, as Asaph was observing, were reckless with their use of their tongues. They didn't withhold. They were just whatever, speak whatever's on your mind. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault. Again, the prosperous didn't seem to ever get in trouble. There was no fault in what they were doing. They weren't, they weren't held accountable for what they did or their actions. And finally, in verse 11, he says, or they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Now the, the prosperous people are mocking God. God can't see us. God's not going to hold us accountable. God's not aware of what we do. So Asaph is evaluating the wicked around him based on what is created rather than on the creator. He's evaluating them based on their present personal happiness and on that which is visible to them. His confession here goes right to the heart of what our struggle with sin is in Romans 1.25. It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The key word in this passage here is exchanged. How easy is it for us to exchange God for his creation? And in doing so, we're tempted to define the abundant life, the prosperous life, as a happy present experience of created things whether that includes physical health, 
friendships, family, financial success, emotional well-being, whatever it may be, our focus has shifted from God, the creator, to that which he created. We exchange the giver for the gift. But if that's not what life is about, if it's not about collecting gifts from God, you know, collecting the created things, what is it about? Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, His divine, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them they may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the chief good that God is doing in our lives is to deliver us from our bondage to our own sinful desires. God is work at work to, to radically change our hearts. He wants to change how we live and the fruit that we bear. This is redemptive work. This is good work. And that's the work that he is doing. And he's given us everything we need to live that kind of godly life in the midst of the situations that we find ourselves in. We need to remember that God's focus for us is going to be redemptive. It's going to be eternal. It's going to be spiritual. And to the degree that we are looking around and evaluating life based on temporal, individual, and physical things, we are at cross-purposes with God. Are we looking at the world and evaluating their success or prosperity with the same way that God looks at them and evaluates them? We come to verse 12, and Asaph is now ready to summarize his observations of the wicked. He says, Behold, look, these are the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase in riches. This is how Asaph sees the world around him. The wicked have the good life. They have the material possessions. They are the wealthy, prosperous, and healthy ones. They live a life of ease. They live in sin with no consequences. They indulge themselves in whatever they want and whenever they want, and they don't ever get in trouble for it. They are content with their circumstances, and Asaph, Asaph finds himself envious of them, and he finds himself jealous of what they have and the good life that they seem to have. So let's think about that for a second and apply it to our own lives. Think about this statement and fill in the blank. It would be good if I had. What would you fill that in? Would it be, what would it be that you would fill in that blank with? Or my life would be complete if I just had. Think about that for a second. What would you do to fill in the blanks of those two statements? The wicked had the good life, according to Asaph. And this is what he sees, and it's, it's a perspective that he had that was based on the present or isolated to the present. Secondly, the man-centered perspective that Asaph has is fueled by a self-centered comparison. He has just described his observations of the wicked. Now he starts to talk about himself and the conclusions he comes to. Verse 13. All in vain. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. We all come to conclusions like this about ourselves from time to time in our situations, and for whatever reason, we assume them to be true. Asaph had done, has done just that here. In vain, he cries, I've tried to please God and be obedient to him. But what's the point of being godly? What's the value of living a godly life? Why be a Christian? What's the benefit of being a Christian? What have I have received as a benefit of my faith and obedience? So Asaph's logic is, goes something like this. God, if he is good, will bless the righteous and punish the wicked. But I see that the wicked have been blessed by God 
while the righteous have suffered. Therefore, God is not good. What is it that you expect from God when you serve him faithfully, when you worship him, when you love him, when you pray without ceasing, when you give your finances generously and joyfully, when you love your neighbors and your enemies, when you share with the poor, when you open your home to hospitality, when we're faithful to confess our sins, when we live ethically and morally and honor those in authority over us, what do you expect from God in return for that? Are you hoping for a better job, a better relationship with your spouse, or maybe just a spouse? Perhaps you're hoping for children, or if you already have them, you're hoping for children who won't embarrass you at the restaurant. Perhaps you're hoping for an end to some physical pain or suffering or some sort of illness. All good things. But if that's what we're hoping for out of our obedience to God, I think maybe we're aiming too low. Perhaps God is at work in your life for something much deeper and much grander. We tend to focus on good, immediate results. But God focuses on the process of making us good. We are tempted to judge his faithfulness, as Asaph has done here, on the basis of how many of our desires he grants us in this life. But God is working to free us, as we read in, in, in that passage just a minute ago out of 1 Peter. He's, grant, he's working to free us from our bondage to the desires of a sinful nature. God wants us to free us from the desires for things so that our desire will be for him alone. Take a look at this uh, quote from Paul Tripp, writing about Psalm 73. He says this. He says, The process of trial and suffering is no indication that God has forsaken his promises to us and is therefore not good. Rather, the process of trials, loss, and suffering, suffering that he ordains for us demonstrates his unshakable, faithful, redeeming love. He loves us enough that even in the face of us not getting it over and over again, he will not forsake the work of his hands until that work is complete. These experiences preach, these experiences should preach to us his goodness, for they are the delivery system of his sanctifying work, which is in fact the good work that he is doing. God is relentlessly committed to this good. It's only because we are committed to something else that we find it so difficult to call good a God who administers such a plan. How often do we find ourselves in Asaph's shoes, thinking the same way, coming to the same conclusions? How often do we fall into that same train of thought? It's a, common, it's a common temptation to all of us to think that if we do good things for God, he has to somehow repay us immediately in intangible, visible, visible ways. How many of you like me, and I wouldn't even attempt to guess the number of times. When I get up in the morning, I have my quiet time, I have my prayer time, and when I'm finished, I close my Bible, I get up, and I think, this is going to be a good day. I just paid my God bill. I'm good to go for the rest of the day. And then there's other days when I go into the morning or afternoon, and it's not going well, and I think back, oh, I forgot to have my quiet time this morning. I forgot to pray. I forgot to pay the God bill this morning. I'm looking for immediate you know, responses from God and, and I'm evaluating his goodness to me based on my experiences that I experienced throughout the day. If I get up and pray, it's going to be a good day. If I don't pray, if I sin, watch out. Um, retribution is coming from God. There may be some singles here this morning and you're committed to and convicted about your relationships with the opposite sex and what those should look like. You're committed to not playing the dating game and not giving your heart away prematurely to someone who's only going to bring 
hurt and disappointment and sadness to you and bad memories. You decide you're only going to go pursue relationships that you believe God has initiated and that could result in marriage. But then as the years go by, what do you notice? All of your friends getting married. Even those at school or at work, the non-Christians who date anybody and everybody, they always seem to find the perfect partner. Has your waiting been in vain? Has your trusting of God been in vain? Teenagers, you obey your parents, you honor them and seek to please them. You get up and make your bed. You help with the dishes, you help with the cooking, you help take care of your siblings. You're responsible. You're not out partying on weekends. You're home on time most of the time. You're doing your studies. You're studious. You're getting good grades. You don't participate in all the other wrong things that your peers are participating in. Then one day, you come home just a few minutes late, and you get in trouble for it. Of all the things, Mom and Dad, I could have been doing, I just got home a few minutes late. And you wonder, what's the point? Why do I do all those other things? These situations and hundreds of others, I can think and apply this to our lives, hundreds of other situations is where this psalm hits our hearts. All these situations, though, begin with one thing. They, they focus on me. It's all about me. I did this. I did that. I'm going to do this. See what I did. Me, me, me. I, I, I. And there's the problem. Anytime we place ourselves at the center of the universe and try to interpret everything and what's going on around us, Based on us, trouble is going to ensue. And if we place ourselves at the center of the universe, and worst of all, try to evaluate God in his goodness based on my experiences and my circumstances, then we are in a very dangerous place. It's easy in all the circumstances we find ourselves in to be disappointed and disillusioned. And that's where Asaph found himself as he was writing these words. His feet almost slipped and he almost fell. This perspective, third and lastly, results in sin. Asaph seems to be sinning all over himself in these passages, or in these verses. He confesses envy and jealousy in verse 3. And it's certainly arrogant. He was con- confessing that he was watching the arrogant and jealous of them. But he's confessing, basically, it's arrogant of him to think that he has kept his heart clean. He said, in vain I have kept my heart clean. I mean, who of us can honestly say, I have kept my heart clean. So Asaph is confessing his own arrogance in his statements. We can't imagine something, saying something like that. It's impossible for us to keep our hearts clean. Did he not just read what he wrote? If you and I read that, I think, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. Well, Asaph, just look at the previous 10, 10, 10 verses. There seems to be anger, bitterness, and resentment in his words as well. And it's the same thing that we do from time to time. We're all tempted to look at our situations and our circumstances and look around us and to try to interpret what's going on in our lives and our circumstances. How often do we do the same thing in our hearts? We look around and see the wicked, the non-Christians. We see them prospering, and we become envious and jealous of them. That's why this psalm, I believe, is here for us. But what's amazing about this psalm is that it doesn't end here. We're just halfway through it. This is the before picture of Asaph. And we're going to see in just a second that his, his questioning, his, his, his mind is going to be completely and wonderfully shifted. Something happens to Asaph. Something happens that totally and completely changes him. What happens to Asaph? He encounters God. He encounters God in his sanctuary. And the after picture of Asaph now begins to emerge. As we see, 
as we read here, we'll see Asaph. Now the, the after picture is a God-centered, eternal perspective. So let's continue through the psalm, beginning at, or continuing at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, so he was trying to understand what he had just written, all the observations about the, the wicked and his conclusions about them. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Remember, just a minute ago, he was confessing that he was about to slip and fall. Now the tables have been turned, and it's the wicked who are on a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one of them wakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Your right hand, you, you hold me with, sorry, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Verse 17, we find a pivot point in this psalm. We find one word that changes everything. Asaph's perspective is, was wrong. It was centered on the here and now. It was centered on man. It was on himself, and it resulted in envy, jealousy, and questions about God. In verse 17, we come to this word, until something happened to Asaph to bring a radical change. Until I encountered God in his sanctuary. And this radical reorienting of Asaph's perspective can be seen in three ways. The first one is an awareness of the destiny of the, of the wicked. Asaph enters God's sanctuary and comes away with a new perspective, an eternal perspective. It's impossible to make biblical sense of what's going on around us and in our lives if, without this kind of perspective. Having an eternal perspective is critical for us to evaluate what's going on around us. Asaph begins to consider now the eternal destiny of the prosperous, the wicked, and to look at life from this vantage point. And without this perspective, we're ten, we tend to look at our stash of goods compare them to the huge pile of goods that our neighbors may have, and we can, we can become discouraged. How different our understanding of this picture becomes, though, when we, what we, when we realize that what the, what the wicked have is in the process of rotting, rusting, and fading away, while what we've been given, what we have, is an inheritance that will never fade. Asaph enters the sanctuary of God, and now he's able to discern the end of, of the wicked. He sees something completely different, something that he had missed, totally missed earlier. Divine, divine perspective always transforms us. It always changes us. And when we see things the way God sees it, it always changes our perspective as well. Asaph now describes the, the, the wicked this way. First, he says that the ungodly are like people standing on a slippery slope. They may be standing right now, but the path they are on is a slippery one, and they will go down. Have you ever watched someone try to cross a, a sheet of ice or a patch of ice? 
They get out there and they walk gingerly, but as you're watching them, you know what's going to happen. You know that they're going to slip and fall. And sure enough, they do. And it's never a surprise to us. that I knew that you were going to slip. I knew that you were going to fall on that ice. And that's the kind of slope that the wicked find themselves on. Secondly, he compares the life of the wicked to a dream or a fantasy. When we're dreaming, in the midst of that dream, doesn't it seem like real life to you? You know, I wake up in the morning. I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but occasionally I remember one. And it's, it seemed very real at the time. But eventually we wake up and the dream is over. The prosperity of the believer, as Asaph now is, is viewing them through his eternal perspective, is the same way. It's only a dream. It seems like real life. It seems like reality. It seems like it's permanent. But in a flash, it's going to be over. And the lasting eternal realities of life are going to close in on them. Again, another quote from Paul Tripp. He says, These two metaphors point us toward what God is doing as he expresses his redemptive love for his children. What is God working on? Is he working hard to provide us with the biggest pile of this world's stuff and this world's happy experiences? If so... He has miserably failed. Even worse, he has used his creative and redemptive power to give us only that which is doomed to pass away. Would this be the work of a good God? Would a good God motivate us to hope in things that are by their very nature temporary? Would he want us to stand on a slippery slope? Would he want our lives to be the passing fantasies of our sleep? Would he be good if he did anything less to confront our powerful delusion of the permanence of this world. When we experience trials and suffering, we need to see them for what they are intended, to explode the myth that this life is all there is for us, and that the goal in this life is not to get and own as much stuff as we can. In trials, we need to see that our situations, our human situations, experience pass away, and we can and must realize who God is and the importance of the gospel to us. The trials, the suffering, the wants in life should not challenge our understanding of the love, justice, and mercy of God. Remember how Asaph started this psalm? He said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So rather than having that truth challenged in the midst of our trials and struggles, it needs to preach to us that this life is not what it's all about. There's more to it. This is not where we need to find our satisfaction in these things. We need to find it in God. God is at work delivering us to that which is eternal, and he's doing all that is within his power to, make, to, to bring that about. Asaph also sees the brevity of life now. He sees the terror that the wicked will experience at the end. There have been a lot of news stories recently about shootings. There just seems to be you know, more and more of them. There was um, that shooting in the uh, movie theater in Aurora, Colorado a few weeks ago. There was a shooting up in a Sikh temple in uh, Milwaukee a couple weeks ago. And just this week, there was news about some shooting outside of the uh, Empire State Building in New York City. And it's possible that perhaps some of the victims knew the Lord and in God's providence, that's how he brought them home and received honor and glory through that. But for others, can you imagine the horrors of staring down a gunman and watching him as he takes aim and fires? Ephesians 2, Paul reminds the believers that at one time they were separated from Christ, alienated from the promises and having no hope and without God in the world. Those who went to the movie, to went to the temple, were just casually walking outside the Empire State Building. 
they died that day not knowing God. They died without hope. Imagine not only the terror of being involved in that incident and being shot, but think about the terrors that followed their death and an eternity separated from God. Secondly, Asaph's divine perspective helped him to not only see the eternal destiny of the wicked, but also gave him a new understanding of himself. In verse 21 and 22, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Previously, Asaph was comparing himself to the wicked. Now he sees how he had responded to God and carried on to God when in that sinful attitude. When he was envious of the arrogant, he had allowed his soul to become embittered, brutish, and ignorant. It says he became like a beast. Asaph compares himself, compares himself to a beast, which is just simply an animal that lives only in the moment. It doesn't aware, it's not really aware of what's going on around it. It doesn't remember what happened. It can't look ahead. It's not able to, 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 to rationalize and think and plan things. It just responds to what's going on in the here and now in the immediate. If you've ever been to a, to a rodeo, they have one event there. It's called the bull riding. And I think a bull qualifies as a beast. Um, Craig, is that, is that true? <laughs> They're a beast. What happens at the bull riding? The, there's a cow. They get the bull into this little pen. There's a cowboy that climbs on, and he, he, he uh, ties his hand to a rope that's around the bull's shoulders. And when he's ready to go, they open the door to the pen, and someone else pulls this other rope around the, the, the bull's groin, and the bull runs out. He's, he's jumping up and down. He's twisting. He's trying everything he can to get this cowboy off of his back. And eventually, he, he succeeds, or the cowboy falls off or jumps off. And then a bunch of clowns come out and chase the bull around and distract him, and eventually they get him back into the pen. But what happens? The next day... The same thing. And the next day, the same thing. Have you ever seen the bulls get together and get organized and say, you know what? I know what's going to happen. They don't do it. They just live in the here and the now. They're not, they don't remember what happened yesterday or last week. They're not able to, to organize and plan and think ahead. And Asaph describes himself that same way. I was like a beast before, before God. I was like a beast before the untell. And in God, in his kindness, had allowed Asaph to see life differently. And finally, Asaph's new eternal perspective brings an awareness of God's blessing on the righteous. Beginning in verse 23, it says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish and put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. What do we have, the righteous? What do we have as Christians that makes us rich? One word, God. We have God. What makes us rich is not a collection of goodies, not wonderful kids, not a great job, not health, not great circumstances. We were rich because of our relationship with God, who is always with us, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. We can look at the wicked and see that, yes, many of them do have burden-free lives, 
They do seem to live at ease. They do seem to, to grow in wealth and prosperity. They do seem to be healthy. They do seem to be the pretty ones, the healthy ones, the happy ones. And we look at those circumstances and we say, but I've got God. I'm upheld by his right hand and I'm guided by his counsel. When my flesh and my heart fail, he is my strength. He has taken me towards eternal glory and it is God alone that makes me rich. So what do you want out of life? Looking for a spouse, riches, new car, children that behave, lots of free time, good health. They are not bad. These are not bad things in and of themselves. But if that's all we're looking for and wanting, what makes us any different from unbelievers? They all desire and want the same thing. For Asaph, he began with a hunger for what the wicked had. But after he encountered God, this was his proclamation. There is nothing. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. A total, complete, radical change took place in Asaph. He was looking at the riches of the world. He was envious of that. He wanted that. He came into God's sanctuary. He encountered God. And now what does he want? He said, there is nothing in this world I want besides God. That is a total, radical, 180-degree shift in this man's thinking. And on this side of the cross, Jesus said to us, I will be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. All that the Father gives me are mine, and nobody will snatch them out of my hand. He will never turn his face away from us. All because there was a day when in obedience to his Father, Jesus Christ, went onto a cross. And it was on that cross that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He was crucified, and he suffered, and he died. The Father turned his back on his Son and poured out the fury of his righteous wrath upon him in punishment for our sins. And as he turned his back on his son, he turns his face towards us so that the Lord blesses and keeps us and causes his face to shine upon us. And he lifts up his countenance on us and gives us peace. And we will be forever with the Lord. We've been justified. All of our sin is credited to Jesus and all of his righteousness has been credited to us. God made our hearts alive to him and we are saved he puts his Holy Spirit in, it, Spirit in us and calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us, it counsels us, sustains us, convicts us of sin, and helps us to grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. At the end of this life, God will receive us into glory. The moment of horror that the unrighteous face at death will be for us extreme joy. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why? Because when we die, the very next thing we'll see is the face of God. We will be in his throne room with God, with our Savior for all of eternity. One of the songs we sing, we actually sung it this matter, this, uh, sorry, one of the songs we sing, we sung it this morning, it says, better is one day in your courts. Well, that's true. How about eternity in your courts? In the presence of God, in the presence of our Savior. It's amazing what Asaph sees now, isn't it? God allows him to realize what is true about him and about us because of Jesus Christ. We join with Asaph this morning. We should be joining with Asaph this morning and saying, Truly, whom I have in heaven but you, there is no one I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All we have is Christ and all we need is Christ. What did you say before when I put those statements out there? All I need is, if I just had, 
If I only had this, I would be happy. What was in that statement this morning? What was your answer fueled by? A perspective on the here and now? Or was it fueled by a perspective on the eternity? We think about how to apply this to hearts. Let me to our hearts. Let me ask you just a couple more questions. It says, what are you consumed to us? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your desires? It could be a literal temptation that we see with our eyes. It could be something in our hearts that we lust after, that we envy it, that we're that we're envious after. The things that worry you, that cause you to stay awake at night. What consumes your gaze? And secondly, do you find yourself envying, envying the wicked this morning? Do you, are you stuck in the moment of looking around and seeing what's going on and, and you're jealous of those, your neighbors, your friends, other family members? You see, do you see what they have and desire after or do you look and see what you have and are satisfied with that? And lastly, what are the ways that you're tempted to question the goodness of God as we look at our lives? Do we question or doubt God's goodness? God must not really be good to me because those financial things haven't changed for years. He must not love me because I'm not married yet. God must not love me, maybe even punishing me because we don't have any kids. Or the ones that I do have are a challenge to raise. We are tempted to question the goodness of God based on our circumstances and what we find around us. But like Asaph, how can we really question God, the goodness of God, when we look and see what he's provided to us through his son? Every day that we wake up with our sins forgiven should be a good day. Every day that we aren't going to experience the wrath of God that we deserve is a great day. And even when the clouds are dark and the suffering continues and the world entices us and we see the wicked boasting and prospering, we should not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed by God day by day. And this slight and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that will be go beyond all comparison. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we find ourselves too many times like Asaph in evaluating your goodness to us based on our situations and our circumstances. And Lord, we confess that that is wrong, that's sinful, and it's an inappropriate way to evaluate your goodness to us. Lord, bring to us this morning... Lord, may your Holy Spirit bring to us an eternal perspective. And may our hearts be satisfied with one thing and one thing only. And that is the love of our Savior. May God be all that we desire. Because he is certainly all that we need. Lord, change our hearts. Lord, help us to see the world around us as you see it. With an eternal perspective. Help us not to be jealous or envious of the wicked. But Lord, to have compassion on them because their lives are passing away. They're the ones who are on the slippery slope. They're the ones who are facing your judgment and your wrath. We pray that your word would go forth into their lives. Lord, help us, Lord, to be, to proclaim your gospel to them, your truth to them. And may your Holy Spirit take those words and bring conviction to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.